Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I'm Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Okay, welcome to the latest episode of The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals. This is our fifth season on the Prophetic Imagination Station. Uh, This is airing the day before a pretty important day in the United States which is Election Day 2020, a day we've been thinking about for four years. (laughs) And, you know, not to be too weird, but one of the reasons we started our podcast um, was kind of thinking about Election Day, right? Yeah, totally. We started it right in the the month that number 45 was inaugurated. Yeah, I remember us in our closet talking about Adventures in Odyssey like on Trump's inauguration day, right? Yeah, uh uh-huh. Yeah, so yeah, just, you know, wanting to look at the things that have shaped us as people who grew up in white evangelicalism and seeing how uh, that demographic has just gone wholeheartedly for uh, some pretty horrifying stuff and just an inability to, to seem... To engage with other people's suffering as a result of their political choices and preferences. So yeah, that's kind of where this is all about. So we're, I don't know, I'm not doing super great, but who is, you know, I'm probably doing better than other people and worse than other people. I don't know. But today it kind of worked out nice. We are talking about the book Prince Caspian, um, which, what is that? Is that the second book? Third book? That's the second book. That's the second book. And in the series... And we end up talking to someone who is both uh, an academic and an artist, which is really great, um, Emily Metcalf, who goes by Emily Austin as in her art, about patriotism in C.S. Lewis's life and how that shows up a little bit in the book Prince Caspian. So, Crispin, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about patriotism? Like, are you a patriotic person or not? Because C.S. Lewis, like, was, and we'll talk about this in the interview, but he thought there's sort of like five different levels of patriotism mm-hmm. and starting off with sort of like the normal, everybody has it and that's fine to like, you know, what we say, call to- toxic nationalism, you know? Yeah. I, I'm probably a patriot in the same sense that C.S. Lewis was and that I think England is pretty good. <sighs> I like my eyes got so wide. I was right. like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? I know that's the thing is like, it's like, I understand that idea. Like Stanley Harvas talks about like, you can be proud of where you come from and proud of your country without having to worship it basically. Uh-huh. But uh, it's just been so ruined. I mean, we we talk about this with our kids a lot. Like what is the significance of someone who flies an American flag? Because on the one hand, like it shouldn't have the meaning that it does, but it does have this meaning. It has a nationalistic, toxic nationalism meaning whenever, when I see it, that's kind of what I see. Well, I see it as saying like, 
don't say anything bad about America. Let's make America great again. Let's keep America great again. You know, mm-hmm. that's definitely what I think. Right. Except, I guess, like, you know, in our neighborhood, we see it, like, flown alongside the Mexican flag sometimes. Yeah, but it's like, we don't know what that means if people do that in order to feel safe in this neighborhood. or You know what I mean? Right, like there's, there, so there could be more going on there. But, yeah, I would say, I've said this publicly before, I, I don't feel like I have a patriotic bone in my body. I think in 2020, when we have so many people dying of COVID-19, when we have so many horrific border policies, when, you know, people do not have access to medical care or parental leave or when Black Lives Matter is seen as like a really threatening and like terrifying thing to say, you know, when questions of police accountability are just totally dismissed, you know, it's like, yeah, what do I have to feel happy about? Like an American nationalism in particular is built upon dismissing you know, basically genocide from the beginning. So yeah, no, I don't feel great about that. The thing that I love about like living in my neighborhood, in my city, in my state, in my country are, uh, you know, the gift of my neighbors. And in particular, my neighbors who have suffered in an unequal and unjust society, which is what we live in. And so like, I find their relationship with me to be what gives me life. And yet, because of my relationship with them, I inherently cannot celebrate my country because they show me, like, just how unjust it is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking that if the U.S. went through, like, a truth and reconciliation process, like some other countries have, mm-hmm. that was actually meaningful, then then I could probably be proud of oh, yeah. the country that I'm live in. Yeah, and other countries obviously haven't done it perfectly, but places like South Africa and Germany, they've at least attempted to. So there's something at the root of American nationalism that, you know, doesn't allow us to engage in that. So C.S. Lewis is interesting because he's coming from England in the 1950s. You know, Lewis himself fought in World War One and then wrote the Narnia books during World War Two. So that, I think, does add, you know, an extra element to this discussion of patriotism. And just an aside, I was reading a book, I am reading a book right now called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus by Reggie Williams, and it's interesting because C.S. Lewis's thoughts on patriotism to me are not fully formed or fully fleshed out. Um, he's still a little, right, too into hierarchy, too into, of course, Britain is the leading, you know, world, whatever. Um, and it was just interesting because Reggie Williams is talking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is very relevant to us in the United States today as someone who's a part of the Confessing Church against, you know, the Lutheran Church in Germany, which went full on for the Nazi party, right? And so people love to be like, oh, I want to be like Bonhoeffer. But what's interesting is Reggie Williams talks about some of these sermons that Bonhoeffer preached when he was pretty young and how he was like, yeah, like you can't, you can't obey the commandments of Jesus. Like, you can't. You can't take it seriously. Like, we're not seriously supposed to love our enemies more than we love our kinfolk. Like, there's just no way God would ever ask us to do that. Like, Hmm. so of course you love your countrymen more than you love your enemies. Like, that just makes sense. Then Bonhoeffer, this is when he was like 24 and like preaching at this other church. Then he went to New York City for like a year. And he, first of all, he hated it. He was at Union Theological Seminary. And he just thought all those liberal theologians were so stupid. And they're like trying to make Christianity relevant and very much about like, you know, 
modernity and all that. And he just thought it was so stupid. And then he ended up, he had, he was friends with was one black student at Union who took him to um, Harlem, to a church in Harlem where he attended for the year he was in New York. And he was like, that's where he discovered Jesus. He's like, the black church in Harlem worships Jesus Christ because they believe that Jesus Christ suffered for them and suffers with them to this day. And so in all of these, in, in like German academia, in New York, you know, theological stuff, he didn't see Jesus anywhere, but he found Jesus in the black church. Then when he goes back to Germany, that's when he starts to be like, no, we actually do have to take the Sermon on the Mount seriously. We actually do have to try and live it out. You have to love your enemies. You cannot put your kinfolk above other people. And like basically Reggie Williams is saying if he hadn't attended church in Harlem for a year, he would have just gone along with the Nazi party and been like, yeah, of course we prioritize your own country and your own people and your own faith over others. And because he experienced black Jesus, basically, he was able to be like, no, like Jesus calls us to love everyone. We can't do this. So I just thought it was so fascinating Mm. and it kind of showed a glaring blind spot i think in lewis's life where i don't think he had that kind of transformative experience mm-hmm. um and that comes out a little bit in his books yeah definitely yeah prince caspian it's probably the most you guys get into this in the interview but it's probably the most most hierarchical i'm not sure but yeah it's a it was a it was a great discussion with emily i think people will enjoy it and hopefully it'll cause us to think about our own uh you know orientation towards patriotism yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh, speaking of, um, I have a couple of dear wormwoods for you. Oh my gosh. You got to listen to them both and tell me which oh, okay, one okay, is. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> my dear wormwood, teach them to estimate the value of each prayer by their success in producing the desired feeling and never let them suspect how much success or failure of that kind depends on whether they are well or ill, fresh or tired at the moment. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Second one. Okay. My dear Wormwood, I'm pleased with your work, convincing so many that their fate lies in the results of the upcoming election. (laughs) Distraction and derision dole the heart. Let them fight and let their disdain for one another be shown to the world, obscuring any commitment to the true king. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Okay. Well, it's obvious. But I love that. I love that, um, you know, screw tape or whatever word, but it's like, yeah, let them just quibble over these silly politics as if actual lives weren't on the line. Right. I found this on Twitter today from someone. I won't. I don't know who it is. But but they were doing it in real, like real. I mean, they didn't say like I made this up. It's another, it's just wait, like two weeks, it's going to be all over Facebook. I guess we don't have two weeks before the election, but. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I mean, it really is, it's like almost become a genre on, unto its own. Of. Of, you know, using this like format, right? No. For that's better. Why that's why we're doing this. Okay. Well, I, I disagree with the demon wormwood. I do think. We are supposed to quibble about politics publicly with Christians. I mean, that's kind of like you should probably put that on my gravestone because that's like kind of how I live my life. (laughs) Pretty sure there's a long list of things that are going on your gravestone. I know. I tell you all the time what to put on my grave. Right. And you never take notes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just have to go back through and listen to all the podcasts. Um,. I was wondering you were you were talking with Emily about uh you know being an anglophile are you 
to what percent are you an Anglophile? Yeah, Anglophile means somebody who's really into British culture stuff, right? And mm-hmm. I would say I'm probably like the normal American percent Anglophile, right? Which is like, I like Harry Potter. I like Jane Austen. I do watch the BBC sometimes. However, just like me and Emily talking about, I am starting to interrogate that a little bit. You know what I mean? Because even coming from like my Christian background, I think we've talked about this and we will talk about it in our upcoming season on Christian romance. Sometimes like when when things are like set in Canada, right? In the 1800s and like the Mounties, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, that's just so it could be all white people. Or like, oh, it's the Amish. Oh yeah, it's so, so it could be all white people. So same thing with, you know, England, BBC things. Some of it is not great, Crispin, and, uh, you know, every once in a while engaging that is great, but looking at it through the lens of, you know, class and race and all that is, is and gender makes it more interesting and, you know, I don't, it's not like mm-hmm. I want my kids to be Anglophiles. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to hear this interview and talk about Prince Caspian. Wait, are you an Anglophile? Uh, I would say 45%. Okay. Yeah. yeah you I know, love Great British Bake Off. <gasps> Oh, well, if that's in the mix, <laughs> I'm like an 80% then. Yes. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. All yeah. right. Let's listen to the interview. Okay, so I'm so excited today to talk to somebody who actually has listened to the podcast before, which is a treat because, you know, this is a weird niche thing. So, uh, Emily is someone who reached out to our email address and had some ideas if we were going to do a series on Narnia. And she had amazing ideas and she had amazing like people to point us to to interview. But then it turns out that she has done a lot of study and thought about Lewis and her her some of her focus is something that is so interesting to me, which is talking about C.S. Lewis and nationalism. So that is what we're going to talk about today. But Emily, Emily Austin, will you please tell us a little bit about yeah, yourself? Sure. Uh, so I am an artist by profession, and I am also currently studying at a university called Signum, which is an online university, um, studying fantasy literature. And uh, specifically, Tolkien is kind of my main, my main jam. But I'm also pretty interested. I've always loved C.S. Lewis and all the Inklings. And so it's something that I'm really interested in. And I like to combine my artistic practice with my intellectual interests. And so I do a lot of fantasy illustrations that illustrate the Lord of the Rings and other Middle Earth things and a little bit of Narnia. And yeah, I like to mix it all together. Oh my gosh, I didn't know about the artist yeah, part. That's my other side of my life. Okay. Okay, we're going to have to link to that in, in the show notes and see some of that. That's really cool because, you know, I have been interviewing a lot of academics and I think they have a really great perspective, especially, you know, I'm just approaching this as mm-hmm. a lay reader. And so I think academics can give us insight, but of course, artists are going to give us other insight as well. So it's really cool that you can marry yeah. them together. So how, so how long have you been? doing this more academic study of Tolkien and Lewis? I would say, well, I started working on my graduate degree uh, three years ago-ish. And I was okay. I was interested before that because I've always liked to nerd out on stuff. So like in college, I had a minor in English. And so in addition to my, my like fine art and graphic design studies, I was also doing a lot of uh, reading and writing papers for, for the English course. And so... 
Yeah, I would say within the last few years is when I really started to jump into it, but it's been a longstanding interest of mine. Yeah. And so you sent me a paper you wrote on mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis and nationalism. And, and I would just love to unpack that with you sure. a little bit, if you don't mind. First of all, how did you get interested in like trying to study C.S. Lewis and his sense of self, place, colonialism, all that? Mm-hmm. So one of the courses that I took last year was uh, the, the basic overarching theme in the course was using Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Um, as sort of a framework to understand like a lot of our culture's mythologies surrounding love and romance um, relationships. And so we even like started with Song of Solomon and worked our way up through uh, a lot of different texts. And Lewis has this really interesting little, it's almost an aside in the beginning of the four loves where he says, I'm not really going to talk about patriotism but here's how it kind of fits into my philosophy. And the basic idea is that as with any sort of uh, affection or sense of what you're playing into your sense of self, patriotism can be destructive if you're putting it like first, if you're putting it above, you know, your, your understanding of God or how you're relating to other people. And I thought that that was kind of a, interesting framework. I thought it was maybe something helpful for our current moment as we are grappling with, you know, what does it look like to be members of a a country, of a nation, even if you have issues with the history of the nation or, you know, how do, how do we work that out within our own sense of identity and our own responsibilities? Yeah. And I think growing up, you know, hearing about C.S. Lewis a lot as as an evangelical American, I, I think I heard a bit about his four love stuff, but could you refresh our memories? I know he talks about like, is it Eros and Agape mm-hmm. and all that? It, he's kind of like the writer that introduced Christians to these Greek words for love. Yes. Is that, is that yes. true? So there's, okay. there's Eros, which is like romantic love. Mm-hmm. There's Storge, which is familial love. Uh, there's philia, which is friendship. And then there's agape, which is the, the love of God, which he thinks if you put that first, then the others can fall into their rightful place. But and what prop- is the order? <laughs> Does he have an order of those four? Well, uh, I can check the order that they're presented in the book. I, I don't know if he would classify like them as like one, two, three, four, as in this one is oh, okay, first, yeah. this one is the second, yeah. this is the third, this is the fourth, but more so that that agape is uh, is the top or the found right. or the foundation i guess you could look at it from a different angle and then the other 3 are all valid and and useful but they must come underneath agape yeah that's so fascinating look thinking back about my childhood basically all i remember hearing in sermons was that Eros is a pale imitation of agape. You know, that's like right. basically all we focus on. We didn't talk about the other two at all. I don't know. <laughs> did you grow up evangelical? Was it similar yes, for you? Yes, I did. Yeah. Um, and I, I can kind of see that too. Uh, there's yeah. definitely more focus on on Eros than on, on Celia or Sorge. And there's so much richness. I think probably if Lewis did have a favorite, he would have picked friendship as his yes. like best love yeah. because he, he thought that like a platonic love between friends was undervalued in society. 
Yeah, and he like loved his dudes, right? Like, he, <laughs> he really, really did. Really, really did. Yeah, and he talks about that quite a bit. And um, yeah, so I, I definitely, as you were saying that, I was like, I bet for him the highest value, you know, below agape would be the the friendship one. So, so where does where does nationalism fit in? Was he saying that kind of fits into familial love or what was he saying? He didn't really make a claim as to, because he, he kind of talks about it in a beginning chapter. So it's before he's gotten into any of those other specific loves. But I do think it connects pretty strongly to familial love. Um, he talks about how how one of the ingredients, in quotation marks, of, of patriotism would be love of home, love of what's familiar to you. And so that definitely has a lot of connections with, with the love of your family and, and what you've grown up with. Yeah. But, and so can you, can you, in your paper, you talk about how he sort of breaks down patriotism mm-hmm. and the ingredients. Would you just go over that really quickly for us? Sure. Uh, let me refer to. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry to just ask you this. And also, we can edit out this, but uh, okay. I'm sorry. Just bring the audio. Yeah. I just thought it was so good. I'll find the spot that I kind of talked about the ingredients. I know I did summarize them. All right. So, so this is the way that I would summarize his, his ingredients in patriotism. They would include just the simple love of home or what's familiar to you. Then there's also a veneration of like national stories and how they overlap with history. Although he, he focuses more on like the stories as stories than as actual history, which mm-hmm. I think has some interesting and, you know, we could talk about that for a yeah. long time. Um, then there's the kind of even less beneficial forms when it starts moving into an assumption of superiority on behalf of like one nation and saying, you know, we're, we're better than all these other countries. And then that would in turn lead to an assumption of a right to have power. Uh, so like might is right or superiority equals right to, to conquest. And then finally, like the, the ultimate bad end of the spectrum would be like a self-destruction where if all you see is like your national identity and then you, you can't relate to anyone else, you can't understand any other perspectives and you end up losing what was good about your own sense of self in the first place so like toxic nationalism exactly is kind of of how you would put it so at one end we have this like i'm just somebody who loves my home and i it's cozy and i right feel comfortable and and of course i love it and there's nothing weird about that and then it goes all the way to the end of toxic nationalism and i think you're right it's really important to be talking about these things since we are definitely seeing some, uh, you know, Christian nationalism in particular at play in the United States. Now, when you were talking about those things, I was like, depending on which way I look at the Chronicles of Narnia, right? I can either say like, oh, I totally agree with C.S. Lewis. Like, it's just about like, Narnia is just like all the things he loves about being, you know, Irish and British and, you Mm -hmm. know, the things that are cozy and some, you know, Oxfordness, you know, in there and, and all this stuff. And then I could also see it the other way where it's like, oh my gosh, there are elements in there that is just like uh, white 
British children should be the ones to lead the world and every other culture is inherently inferior and will one day have to bow before Aslan or be sent to the fires, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, whoa, those, Mm -hmm. I I see both ends of those extremes in there. I'm for sure. And I'm not sure if if Lewis knew that he was going up and down that spectrum. What What do you think? Yeah. I, I don't know if he would have self, like if we would have thought that through, I don't know how much he was thinking about like the four loves and what he wrote there when he got to Narnia from what I know about how he wrote Narnia is they were produced rather quickly and not really a lot of like drafting as far as we know. Uh, and so and that that's how he tended to write. He just kind of dashed off a story. He may have even formed a lot of it in his head and then written it down and then good, move on to the next thing. Uh, and so I do think there's, there's a lot of room to, look at the text critically and say, all right, so where is Lewis living up to his own, like, better ideas about patriotism or group identity? And then where is he not, like, criticizing or critiquing his own assumptions about, like, his place in the world and what he saw as, like, the good or best cultural elements? Yeah. Yeah, and I think most people, you know, that I grew up with would just say, like, it's just a normal man of his time writings, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he is someone who fought in a war for Uh his country. He is someone who had a lot of pride in being who he was, and that's not necessarily bad. And yet, at the same time, I think it's really okay to say there's a lot of some, I don't know, would you call it colonialism? Just inherent in these stories that... I'm just wondering if you've studied fantasy, like, is that a normal element of fantasy stories or is he drawing on, I guess I feel a little confused. Cause like when I read George MacDonald, who really influenced Lewis, I don't mm-hmm. see any of that. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just pure fantasy. And then at the other end, we do have Tolkien, right. Who is a bit more explicit, I believe in his colonialism, but maybe you can speak into this. This muddle yeah, of questions. I yeah. Have. I would, I would definitely agree that colonialism tends to be a pretty inherent part of fantasy as we understand it today. Okay. And in part, that is because most of the people who were shaping fantasy as a genre, Tolkien and Lewis being kind of some of those main pillars, they were from a colonialist society. Mm-hmm a society that was beginning to confront its own part in that, but hadn't finished that journey. I mean, we and they still have not finished that journey, but uh, it definitely comes out in, in how they write. And Lewis does have texts where he more explicitly confronts colonialism. So like the, the space trilogy or the ransom cycle for sure has a little more, uh, like awareness that that tends to be our Eurocentric perspective um, as he's showing, like, you know, he, he pulls it into space and, mm-hmm. and shows how science can be combined with that colonialist or superior attitude. Um, but I don't think when it came to Narnia that Lewis was necessarily thinking along quite that same vein. And so it, it, it yeah, it sort of shows up as something that's, almost inseparable from, from the culture that gave rise to fantasy. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And maybe I'll come back to another question I have about this at the end, but I wanted to talk to you about, um, well, first of all, what are some of the books where you think some of this patriotism stuff comes up from the, you know, starting from like, oh, I just love Narnia and it's my home uh, to maybe some more uses. I want to talk to you about Prince Caspian in particular, but Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there's other books where you, where you see this coming up too. Sure. I would say, well, it, it's not like a hugely strong element in any of them more as an underlying factor in, in all of them, Mm. I would say. It does, I mean, certain elements of like a colonialist attitude definitely come to the forefront in The Horse and His Boy and The Last Battle in particular. But there's a lot to be said about like the right of people to, uh, like the right of self-determination in Prince Caspian, in The Silver Chair, uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, And I do think it gets a little bit messy sometimes because of the way the books are seen as Christian symbolism. Mm -hmm. And so you've got like the, the symbolism of the religious aspects on one side and you've got these more like sociopolitical elements on the other and you could interpret them either way. Um, But I think knowing that it's meant to have Christian resonance, resonance often causes Christians to just go with that spiritual reading rather than interrogating it more deeply. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's talk about Prince Caspian a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's honestly one of the books that I just, you know, as a kid, I didn't love it so much. And then I think the most recent interaction I've had with it is when like the newest movie adaptation came out of Prince Caspian. And yeah. honestly, uh, what I think about it, I'm like, I just think about like, person who looks like they belong in a boy band just like in a bunch of <laughs> battle scenes yeah and there's like some badgers who are fighting which is interesting but beyond that you know i'm like this is boring this is like battle 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 and it's interesting because i, I kind of think i understand why you know prince caspian gets turned into a movie while you know the other half of the books don't right, right, right. um but yeah so i wondered if if you can sort of Talk us through what happens in Prince Caspian and how that sort of relates to nationalism. I will say on this podcast with other other interviewers, we've talked a lot about Kellerman and the Kellermans mm-hmm. and and how Lewis, you know, thought about that. But Prince Caspian introduces something a little bit more different, right? With this yes. other group of people and their origin story. So maybe you can just kind of refresh people's memories about what's going on in Prince Caspian. Sure. So Prince Caspian or the Return to Narnia, which is like the subtitle, shows the Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy being pulled back to Narnia, like without choosing to, even though they're delighted to go, um, to help the young Prince Caspian reassert his claim to the throne and help the old Narnians, as they are called in this book, uh, be able to basically take back Narnia because they have been subjugated by another group of people, the Telmarines from a different country. So the sort of the setup is of the story is that the Telmarines have been ruling Narnia for hundreds of years at this point. And the old Narnians, the talking beasts, the dwarves, the dryads and everybody have been essentially driven underground. And I think that, it's a really interesting story because when I read it now, I see 
a lot of parallels to like settler, settler colonial societies today. So when I read Prince Caspian, even though the book is telling me to relate to the old Narnians, which I want to, like I want to be on their side, but when I read it, I see my own situation in life a lot more akin to the Telmarines as a member of a, a group of people that have, you know, historically pushed out and silenced and uh, oppressed uh, mm-hmm. other groups of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what's so, it's, it's a little confusing, I think for the reader to, to understand all, like all the, politics of Lewis and how he did all this stuff because the Telmarines were originally like pirates in our actual world yes. and then you know came through and then settled for forever but they settled the land where the Calamarins were but Aslan made them all turn into beasts who couldn't talk because they did something bad I, you know it's just like all these stories upon stories upon stories and then is Caspian himself Telmarine? He is. So he could be kind of interpreted as sort of a white savior in some readings, I think. Um, Although I don't doubt his motives when I read the book. I I can sort of understand where characters like Nickabrick, who is distrustful of Caspian, are coming from and saying, like, how how do we know that you are going to actually care about us as a people when your people have just, you know, totally thrown us aside and tried to erase the fact that we ever existed. Um, But I do think that there's an interesting way that Lewis connects this Telmarine society with pirates, because it's almost like he's saying that colonization is piracy. Mm. And so that was something I was thinking about earlier today. Like, Oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. Like he, there is an overt, um, an overt rejection of, like colonization practices and we, you can, we can talk a lot. I'm sure you've talked with your other interviewers about how the more subvert or uh, covert elements of the book tend to be less pleasant. But when we talk about the overarching narrative of this book, I do think it is a rejection of conquest and, and colonization. Interesting. I mean, I definitely didn't get that as a kid, but I think I can see what you're saying. I think, I, I don't know if you can, if we can talk a little bit though about why this is more confusing with the Telmarines is because it's not as racially clear. Right. Yeah. We don't really on. know much about the racial makeup of the Telmarines from the story itself, not from the text. Yeah. Okay. So we're totally getting into the weeds here. Yeah. But in Narnia, who makes up the humans? Is it mostly people from our world plus people who, you know, were Telmarines who, again, they, they also came from our world? Yeah, that's kind of an unanswered question. So, like, in this book, Aslan does like explicitly say, you guys came from the world of these children, from the, you descend from Adam and Eve. But in the rest of the book, like, we never get an answer as to whether the Calormines were also people that found their way into Narnia somehow. I, I would say probably if Lewis had thought about it more and explored that, he might have said yes, because it that seems to match up with the rest of the book, uh, with like the magician's nephew, having the first king, being a cab driver and his wife, and they get brought over and live in Narnia. Um, but it's not, it's not explicitly answered. 
So it is a little bit confusing. And that was just sort of, I don't think Lewis was really terribly interested in figuring out all those minutiae. He kind of just wanted to tell a good story and just roll along with it. Yeah, and that drove Tolkien crazy, right? <laughs> it tended, crazy, it but tended you know what I mean? to, but yeah, he, <laughs> he did have some issues with Narnia from what we can tell. Yeah, and so again, I just feel like nobody's really been able to answer this question I have, which is I think a lot of this colonialism it is kind of under the surface a bit, but it I is, agree. and I know he just wanted to tell some good stories, but why why is sort of the central story of the first book in particular, and, and it goes back also to The Magician's Nephew, that Narnia, this amazing country with all these interspecies and all, all these things, like why do they need benevolent monarchs from England? Right. And honestly, I think Lewis just, well, he explicitly did like hierarchy. He yeah. thought that hierarchy was just part of the natural order. Um, and then some of this also would be the fact that he's drawing from a lot of medieval sources and perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that Prince Caspian is one of the most Arthurian of any of these, of the Narnia books. I mean, there's definitely Arthurian elements in them all, but this one with like the going to the ancient castle and then the kings and queens coming out of the past, like Arthur mm-hmm. is said to do one day with England. It's definitely something he's playing around with. And the Arthurian, world takes a single leader appointed by God for granted. So Lewis is borrowing Mm -hmm. that idea along with the rest of the trappings of knights and battles and all that sort of thing. Okay. So that it's like interesting because when you say like that's an Arthurian, you know, almost like a genre convention, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, okay, I get it. Then when you think about present day United States of America, thinking about one leader who God has divinely appointed and can do no wrong. It gets very, very messy, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. I'm like, I got chills in a bad way just Mm -hmm. thinking about it. And so that's the tension here, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can say he's drawing upon medievalist literature, which he was, and he was passionate about it. And you can also say there's extremely problematic things that can come out of that. Yes. And one of the things I liked that you talked about in your paper is um, even even at the very sort of, you know, least scary end of the spectrum, which is loving things that are comfortable for you and mm-hmm. are just like you. And you are saying like, even that needs to be interrogated, mm-hmm. you know, even that needs to, you need to say like, maybe there's more work to do here. Do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit more, especially as it pertains to Lewis? Sure. Himself? So Lewis, when he starts talking about that idea of love of home, he says, this is not in the least aggressive. Mm-hmm. It only becomes militant. I think is the word he uses when it feels uh, like it needs to de- defend itself. And while I do think that we as humans do naturally react in defense, oftentimes, I don't think that's always good. Um, and especially when we look at like issues of immigration and other like global society questions at the moment, we see a lot of people having a perceived threat against their culture or mm-hmm. their way of life. But that doesn't mean that their actual 
um, perce- perception is true. It, right. So like when I think about like people who are afraid of immigrants here in the United States, um, yes, maybe they have a concern, but that doesn't mean that it's necessarily valid or that, that, that narrative is the most helpful one for us as a society, as we try to make a more just and, uh, more welcoming place. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about the fact that, you know, Black Lives Matter has become a rallying cry for many people who want to see our justice system, you know, actually treat everybody equally, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of targeting, uh, you know, Black and Brown, you know, people in particular with injustice. And that is seen as inherently like anti-white people right? and and honestly anti-Christian. So like most of the people who would push back on that that I know are white Christians and who, who find it very offensive to, when you say Black Lives Matter. Right. And so stuff like that, I think that's exactly right. You can be like, I'm very comfortable in my world. Somebody bringing up a problem or bringing up a fact that not everything's okay is, is suddenly seen as like, Oh my gosh, that's offensive to me. And I think right. that goes into the next thing that Lewis was talking about, right. Which is national story. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they're really closely connected perhaps like maybe you can't build a cozy, safe, comfortable world unless you wholeheartedly buy into the national stories, right. That your, your yes. country would want you to believe. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I totally see that. Um, there is so much of a pushback against any attempt to add nuance or kind of the other side of the story, um, especially in our United States uh, history. Mm-hmm. And so like I've had conversations too with, with people lately and a lot of what I hear is why do we have to always be focusing on the bad stuff? Mm-hmm. Why can't we like just join together and move forward and all, you know, work on making this country a better place together. And while I, I agree that we should be working together to make our country better, I think that that requires some reckoning with what the past has been and how it's had an impact on our current situation. And so, yeah, I do see that desire to not fully address or concentrate on on the less savory parts of history. Um, and Lewis does acknowledge like, you know, every country, he calls it shabby and shameful doings, which mm-hmm. is, I think if I'm quoting him, right. Which is a little, maybe a little bit of an understatement mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to mm-hmm. like colonizing powers. But he does say like, yeah, we all have this and we shouldn't try to hide it. But he doesn't think that that completely negates the power of like bucking up stories about how great our ancestors were. Yeah, so, I mean, so it's attention. Did he seem to have any awareness of the power differentials between different cultures? Like, yeah, every culture has good and bad elements, has histories that, you know, have good and bad ele- things to them. But, you know, England in particular, right, was such a huge colonizing force in the mm-hmm. world. I mean, did he ever kind of address that? He he did, and he may have addressed it even more in some other parts of his writings, like maybe some essays that I, I haven't explored as fully. But when it comes to the four loves in particular, what he ends up saying is, well, we were 
colonizers and it's bad, but we weren't as bad as some of those other European colonizers who were worse than us. Oh, who's he talking about? <laughs> Belgium, Portugal? Who's Probably, he about? yeah. He doesn't. I don't think he specifically <laughs> mentions it, but he's like, "Well, we were trying to be good. Yeah, we maybe weren't always good, but we were trying." Which I'm like, "All, all right, dude." Like, <laughs> you know, I think that still happens. I actually just got a message today from someone who has been following my social media account about what's uh, been going on in Portland with all these protests, yeah. and they were writing to me to be like, "Yeah, we live in Europe, and like, we just." feel so bad for you all we also like to look at you in america and be like wow we are not as racist as them we must be amazing and like <laughs> that's so funny because i had someone tell me the other day like well what about england aren't they racist and colonizers too and i'm like well yes but we need to like clean up our own house first so like if everybody's just pointing at the people on the other yeah. side of the world then no one's gonna yeah. get anywhere yeah i just thought this part i was like I'm sure Lewis had some thoughts about America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's so, it's so interesting that I, yeah, I just wondered about the power differentials and if, if he's aware of that and um, yeah, I mean, we can't, we can't shape him as exactly as we'd want to be, but I just think he, he definitely had some, some blind spots there. And I think yeah. you're also right that, he he didn't know exactly what he was doing all the time w with writing these stories and, and some of just what's in his brain and, and heart probably came out. Um, now, a question I have is I've talked to people who talk about him loving medieval literature and all that stuff. As he engaged with medieval literature, do you think it was a way for him to sort of surround himself with nationalistic stories without having to really deal with the unsavory aspects of it? Do you, do you know what I'm asking? Um like he gets to marinate in the mythology mm -hmm. without dealing with some of like the actual consequences. Yeah, probably so. Um, you know, Lewis was really big on not being a chronological snob, as he called it. I don't know if you've yeah. talked about this with yeah. anyone else, um, but so not not assuming that like the age we live in is the best or yeah. where you know because that is a a specific view of the world where you think that things are constantly getting better. Um, yeah. And especially in, in Lewis's time, that kind of got dashed by world war one where a cent like a century of so-called progress was like, Oh, well actually we're like completely tearing apart our world right now. So how can mm -hmm. we, how can this happen? Um, so Lewis was reacting along with a lot of other people of his generation against that. Um, but when it comes to the Middle Ages, like that certainly was one of his fortes. Uh, he wrote a lot about medieval literature and the perspectives of the European Middle Ages. And yeah, perhaps that I, I don't think he shied away from critiquing okay. medieval perspectives, yeah. but he probably wouldn't do it exactly the same way we would. I mean, we all stand on our own perspective. So he mm -hmm. was standing in his perspective and looking backwards and and now we're doing the same i i don't think that that means we can't critique i think we should you know we should be critiquing ourselves and the perspectives of the past yeah and i think for me sometimes maybe and maybe this is a false binary but one of the things as i've as i've sort of dug into this series in this season on narnia i've just been really 
really drawn to and impressed by Lewis's rejection of modernism. Like just what you were Mm -hmm. saying, right? Mm -hmm. The age we live in does not, is not the pinnacle of everything. And there's so much wisdom to be found um, throughout history and and thinking about like the pre-enlightenment period and how that was totally passed over in my own education. And Mm -hmm. I went to a Bible college, right? It was basically (laughs) like the Bible was written and then Billy Graham came around and, um, You know, and so I think there's so much wisdom in what Lewis is saying and sort of this anti-modernism. I'm just like, I'm all there. I'm all there. Mm -hmm. But then I do wonder about this sense of like romanticism or nostalgia, right? For Mm -hmm. for these other time periods where, again, I I don't know much about medieval literature, but I'm pretty sure women weren't prioritized, that there weren't people from other ethnicities and other countries really prioritize, you know what I mean? It would probably be very hierarchical, God ordained, Mm -hmm. male centric, Mm -hmm. Eurocentric. So that's, I guess my, that tension I feel that sometimes that nostalgia and longing I feel uh, comes through his writings and it just leaves out a lot of people. Um, Yes. So yeah. And especially when, so if we go back to Prince Caspian, I would say probably one of the primary readings that a lot of Christians at least would come away. Like if you, if you just pick up a book and read it, you're like, okay, this is like a, maybe a parable about like Christianity being persecuted and, you know, Christians being driven underground. Um, I don't know if, like, I don't, I have no idea what Lewis was thinking about when he wrote the book. Maybe he was thinking about Nazi Germany you know, he was definitely writing during World War II. Interesting. There are times, but but I would say that probably, uh, like the idea, if you're if you're reading it from a Christian symbolist lens, you're going to see like, oh, Narnia is like God's country. So in this story, God's country gets like you know taken over and subjected to mm. evil. But if we read it that way, like that could feed into like the persecution complex that some Christians in like the United States might be kind of subscribing to currently. And, and there's, I think less helpful elements in in that, in that perspective. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. There's so many different ways you can read this story and some are more helpful than others. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting because I I do think from what I read, Lewis was pretty surprised by how much Americans like freaking loved these books. Um, So I wonder if you're right that there's, there's some of these themes and even in, you know, the 1950s um, there, you know, the U S had already experienced this cultural shift, right. Mm -hmm. Where a lot of Christian fundamentalists, felt like they'd been, they'd lost, you know, they'd right. lost the cultural battle. And um, so maybe this book spoke a little bit to that and is one of the reasons why it was so, so popular. There's also um, for sure kind of the cultural cachet of Britishness, which Americans have long been fascinated with. And why, why is that? You know, I, I think some of it is like vestiges of classism. Yeah. And, you know, we associate the British accent with, intelligence and oh it's just so cute and romantic or what, whatever um, I mean and I am an unashamed anglophile so but I am trying to like self interrogate that as well like why why am I so captivated with uh, Britain and and all of its history and probably some of it is because that's where some of my ancestors came from 
And some of it is that most of the literature that I was shaped by as a young person came from that part of the world, less than, than other parts of the world. Um, but it's a very strong current in our, in our current culture. And I, I think some of it is just, yeah, it's like vestiges of empire. Um, and it's one of the few places where like that, that empire is still kind of clinging on, even though the actual political power has diminished, there's still that kind of what, like what you were talking about, but then the nostalgia, uh, is still there. And I guess we like those nostalgic stories of empire sometimes. Yeah, I love what you just said, because you said, like, I'm an unashamed Anglophile, which means you love things that are British, right? Yes. And I also, I love many things like that. Although, you know, in recent years, I think you're right. I've just started to interrogate a little bit more, like, do I really want to watch another PBS show with all white people? Like, a bunch of rich British people. <laughs> Very rich, right? Yeah, and even when I was a kid and ones. I loved Jane Austen, I didn't realize, like, those are the one percenters, man, you know? Yes. Um, so, so I'm like, do I really want... And I think, like, every once in a while, it's great. If that's all you are interested in, though, it is time to interrogate. It is time to yes. ask yourself, what's going on? And why am I limiting my interests into this one spot? So I don't know if this is going to put you on the spot, but could you share with us ways you are sort of interrogating that within your own life? As someone who loves yes. Tolkien, loves Lewis, studies it, oh, you know, I, how, do you, how do you do that? I would love to talk about this. All right. So like, actually, very recently, I have tried to make like I've been doing some post-colonial perspective research on like Tolkien and and Lewis for uh, for a while now and sometimes it's felt like it's been a little hard to find that sort of scholarship angle but lately I've been trying to find more fans who are coming at the works from that angle so like I found a Twitter user who goes by diverse Tolkien and She's a black woman and she's re- doing readings of Tolkien from like a post-colonial and uh, critical race theory perspective. And it's been wonderful to like follow along what she's reading. And there's several other people that are doing similar things in the Tolkien fandom and in other, um, in other fandoms. Like I recently actually, so when I knew this interview was coming up, I put out a call on Twitter for, from a few people that I know um, who are interested in Narnia and said, Hey, does anybody know of any like indigenous readings of Narnia? And I didn't get any, like, no one's like, Oh yes, here you go. Mm -hmm. But everyone was like, Oh, that's a great question. Uh, Let's look at it. And it led me to a couple of, of books that I'm going to read. Like one is um, book by Daniel Heath justice, who is a Cherokee scholar and he wrote a book called Why Indigenous Literatures Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, a, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've kind of jumped into the introduction. He's got a lot of fascinating things to say about like how indigenous people use literature and how literature has also been wielded as a weapon against mm-hmm. them. Um, so that's, those are some of the things I've done. Also in my artistic practice, I've started to branch out into like, portraying characters from some of these stories as like Mm non-white characters. So like I did a painting a couple weeks ago of one of Tolkien's Valar, like his kind of deity people um, as a, as a black woman. And that was like super fun. Mm. Um, And I've kind of reached, asked 
other people like, Hey, who, who are you reading in these stories as like non-white characters and tell me, and maybe I'll paint some of them. Okay. I love what you're saying because I think sometimes if you are, you know, white, like me come from a privileged background, like me, mm-hmm. you can hear, you can hear us saying like, you need to interrogate your desires or your interests and it can be really threatening. Mm-hmm. Everything you're talking about sounds so fun and so yes. joyful and so interesting and just makes for an altogether better experience. That does not sound like a drag to me. I think it just opens up so much more creativity, yes. but it does for sure require a, a sense of curiosity and yeah. some humility to yeah. say, hey, I probably don't know everything, so I'm going to listen to other perspectives. Uh, I, I've seen a, some pushback in the Tolkien community from people saying like, oh, well, all we ever talk about now is like whether Tolkien's good or bad. And it's so much more complex than that. Yeah. But when I see like scholars and fans of color engaging, like they're not rejecting the work outright. They're, they're bringing these things up because they love it and they want to keep talking about it. And they maybe want to participate in, in reshaping how we as communities see the things we love. Yeah. And I just love it. Creativity, humility, love. I think these are things that Lewis, you know, he strove after in his own life. And I think it's okay for us to do that too. So thank you so much, Emily. This has been a great conversation. I feel like we could have talked a lot more about that. Um, And thank you for just emailing us and giving us your insights. (laughs) And then I just sort of pressured you into interviewing with me, but I'm glad I did that. (laughs) No, I'm glad that you did too. It's not something that would have occurred to me, but it's been delightful. So So where where can people find your artwork? Because I'm sure they all want to see it now. Uh, Where can they find you on social media? All right. So my website is emilyaustindesign.com. And Emily and Austin are spelled the pretty normal ways. Um, On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is Emmy Kamale. Um, I'm originally from Hawaii, actually, so Kamale is a Hawaiian word. Um, but E M M E K A M A L E I. And then on Facebook, I have Emily Austin Design. That's my art page, and I try to update all of those relatively frequently. Great, and we'll put and we'll put those in the show notes so people can Great. find you. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Emily. You're welcome. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.